Bibles, Ephesians chapter 5, Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to be covering verses 25 through 33 this morning, and uh, the title this morning is As Christ Loved the Church. Last week we talked about the role of the wife in the body of Christ, and particularly in the family relationship. And this morning we're going to look at the, uh, the role of the husband in the family relationship, also, as it, uh, again, is a part of the body of Christ. And uh, without godly families, you know, we don't have godly congregations. And again, it's important that we understand what the will of the Lord is for marriage. As creator and ruler of this world and everything in it, God is the one who has the perfect plan for marriage. Remember, God's the one who thought of marriage. Not a bunch of primitive cavemen thousands and billions of years ago, as they say, and came up with the idea. It was God's idea. God created man. Out of man, he created woman, brought her to him. He officiated at the first wedding. And he wrote the book on marriage. Who better than to go to, you know, when we, when we need to know these things? We have to accept his plan. And we need to depend upon his infinite wisdom when it comes to the roles of both husband and wife. And this morning, we're going to try to get a better understanding of the husband's role and studying how it relates to the wife's role. And this biblical perspective is needed for Christ-likeness in marriage. Husbands, it's through your role that you show Jesus to your wife, to your family, and to the world. And so we must ask ourselves, do we show Jesus to our wife, to the family, to the world? Do they see Jesus? And today, our society has really managed to totally confuse the roles of husbands and wives. Now, they can say that, that, that or they want to make it normal, that you know, uh, two men can make up a family, two women can make up a family, and even more, even a combination of all of the above makes a family. Uh, when Adam and Eve fell... The result was the distortion of the roles of marriage. And the result of God's curse also affected marriage. And even Christians have accepted the worldly opinion that it's okay. And, and the church has even gotten into the act to think that two men, two women make up a family and, is, and normally can, and can raise kids. And do all of the things that w where God said that it was designed for a man and a woman. And again, the church has even gotten into accepting these things. They've just they've gotten comfortable with, with the idea. That, and, and again, Christians have accepted the worldly opinion that it's okay for everybody to do what's right in their own eyes. And this kind of thinking usually brings heartache to God's people. And it surely grieves God's heart brings shame to his name. Proverbs 18, 1 and 2 says, A man who isolates himself 
seeks his own desire. He rages against all wise judgment. A fool has no delight in understanding, but in expressing his own heart. I want to read that same uh, text from the New Living Translation. A recluse is self-indulgent, snarling at every sound principle of conduct. Fools have no interest in understanding. They only want to air their own opinions. And boy, we have a lot of that today. Isaiah 5.21 says, Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. And we're warned by Solomon in Proverbs 3, 5 to 7, not to lean on our own understanding and not to be wise in our own eyes. The Christian husband has to see how important it is to do things God's way. For the husband to really understand God's way, he has to first understand how God sees man and woman. And there is differing opinions, of course, on that. Some think they're equal. Some think they're not. And the male chauvinists and the, the women libbers, they both have, they've, they've both made understanding their roles about subject to equality totally confusing and unclear. Again, they've made understanding their roles about the subject of equality totally confusing and unclear. But as a creator, as the creator, God has the right view about their nature and equality. And actually, they're both equal and unequal depending on what position of their role you're talking about. The two are positionally and personally equal. Both were created in the image of God. And this means that each was created with the ability and responsibility to know and glorify God. And it also means that both man and woman were created the same in nature and intellect. Neither man nor woman is loved nor accept, or accepted by God more or less. And the way God sees it, they are equal in basic nature and understanding. The two are functionally equal. Like the Trinity, there's to be an order of function between the husband and wife. And God has wisely assigned who gets what function. This assignment of roles has nothing to do with one or the other's worth or ability. It has everything to do with love, humility, and the goal of effectively glorifying God. The husband is given authority over the wife by God's authority. And the wife is to submit to the husband's leadership because this is the best way to glorify God. And since the goal of every sincere Christian is to glorify God... The husband and the wife can each accept their role with joy. The husband and wife are not equal only in the area of authority, but to position. But you know what? We have that in so many areas of, of life, again, and it's normal. And yet when we see it in the husband and wife relationship that the, the husband has the head over the wife, people frown and they get all crazy and, they, you know, and, and, and you know, it has a lot to do with how those roles are performed as well. But you know, we, we see in society that parents have authority over children, that governments have authority over the citizens, employers have authority over employees, church leadership has authority over church members, and so on. And remember, Jesus was in submission to his father. He was in submission to his father, and he said, I always do those things that please him. He always did what pleased the father. 
So we have to honestly ask, our que- ask the question, what's the problem with the authority of the husband? God has no problem with the right view of submission or authority. They have perfect unity and contentment. So the answer to why do we have difficulty with authority or submission is it comes from our own sinful pride. It's ego. It's ego. The husband has to humble himself to realize that he doesn't have unlimited authority. He has delegated authority. His authority has been given to him by God. He's under authority. He's under the Lord's authority. And your authority isn't for your own benefit. And that authority should be carried out lovingly. Again, the husband is under authority. A wife must humble herself to realize that she obeys Christ by respecting her husband's position at all times. Both leadership and submission should also flow out of a love relationship between the husband and wife. The husband and wife relationship is not a boss-employee relationship, an officer-soldier relationship, or teacher-and-student type relationship. It's a love relationship where two become united as one. So within this joining together, one partner lovingly takes the lead and the other willingly and actively supports that lead. Now there's an authority structure in the scriptures. 1 Corinthians 11.3, Paul said, But I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. So there was God, Christ, man, and woman, the, the biblical authority structure. So as we've learned earlier, the working roles of the husband and wife should be patterned after Christ and the church. Christ being the husband, the church being the bride. And we follow, again, Christ's lead and how he treats and loves his bride, the church. The Holy, I'm sorry, the Son and the Holy Spirit willingly submit to God the Father and glorifies him by their submission. God is head over man. Man willingly places himself under God, glorifying God by his submission to him. Man is head over woman who willingly places herself under man, glorifying God by her submission. And if you remember, before we even started any of these, these roles here, chapter 5, verse 21, it said that they are to submit to one another. Let them submit to one another. So, with the appointment of authority comes glory. Comes glory. A person in authority does get a certain amount of glory or status because of the very nature of, of their position and the submission of those that are under them. But the husband has to remember that he's in this place of glory not because he's better at it and by no worth of his own and that he should give all the glory to God. Some think there should be a mutual submission between husband and wife. And naturally, in a way, they're both to lay down their own wills and give preference to each other. And this would follow the nature of Christ. Jesus said in Luke twenty-two forty-two, Not my will, but yours be done. So a husband is to take into consideration. And whenever he thinks it's the right thing to do and possible thing to do, act upon his wife's requests, counsel, and warnings. In other words, he doesn't, he, he's not to, to reject or ignore the counsel or, or, or warnings of his wife. 
But again, when, when, it, when it's the right thing and it's, a possible, and it's possible to act upon, he is to listen to her requests, her counsel, and her warnings. So again, just because he has authority does not mean she has no say in the relationship. That's not at all what it means. But there should never be a time when the wife takes the position of authority over the husband. The scripture says she is to be subject to her husband, her own husband, nobody else, her own husband, in everything, and that's everything that's godly. The husband's role specifically includes leadership. The Bible has made it clear that the husband is head over the wife and his family, and that he's to lead as Christ leads the church. He's the spiritual leader of the home. So what do these things mean in an everyday, useful, sensible way in marriage? And how does this apply in marriage? Well, we can see some of the specifics from the passage we're going to look at this morning, verses 25 to 33. So the pattern of Ephesians 5 is Christ and husband, church and wife. In verse 22 through 24 and verse 30, the husband presides as head. In verse 22 and 24, the wife follows as a respectful, submissive body. So let's begin now with chapter 5, verse 25. And it begins, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. The husband practices active love, that is, sacrificially giving his own life for her, which includes protecting and cherishing. And also, the wife honors and serves Jesus' goals and her husband's goals. Look at verse 26 and verse 27. It goes on to say, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So here the husband cleanses her with the word by the Holy Spirit toward uh, being Christ-like. Again, he has to help her to become and, and, and move towards being Christ-like. Because the church gets defiled by the world, it needs constant cleansing. And the word of God is the cleanser. And to be honest, there shouldn't be any wrinkles in the church. Because wrinkles are a sign of, of old age and it's a sign of internal decay. And one day what it's saying here is that Jesus Christ is going to present his bride, the church, faultless to the Father. No wrinkles, no stains in her white gown. So as the church is nourished by the word, these wrinkles should disappear like a beautiful bride. The church should be clean and youthful, which is possible through the Holy Spirit using the word of God. In verses 26 through 27, the wife seeks to learn and change with the word by the Holy Spirit toward being Christ-like. Look at verse 28 and 29. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. So these verses say the husband provides for her physically and spiritually. And again, looking at Jesus Christ as an example, what does he do for his bride? He provides for us physically and and spiritually, as well as in many other ways. There are two special words in verse 29. The word nourish and the word cherish. 
The word nourish means to nurture, to rear, and it's translated nurture, or the care of one's own flesh. And it speaks of meeting your wife's material and spiritual needs. The other word, notice, I'm sorry, and, and to nourish a wife is to provide for her needs, to give her the things that help her to grow and to mature in favor with God and man. And then the word cherish means to heat, to soften by heat, to keep warm. And it's the picture of birds covering their young with their feathers. In Deuteronomy 26, uh, 22, verse 6, metaphorically, uh, the word means to cherish with tender love, to foster with tender care. So to cherish her is to use tender love and physical affection to give, to give her warmth, comfort, protection, and security. Those responsibilities are mostly the husband's, not the wife's. Just as Christ provides for his bride, so the husband provides for his wife and his family. And in these verses, the wife depends on, looks to, and wisely uses resources to give back and to serve. So the husband's role specifically includes, as verse 27 says, no, uh, uh, verse 25, love. Love her as, the, as Christ loved the church. The command for husbands to love their wives is repeated several times in Scripture. So it makes it pretty clear that this is to be a very important characteristic of the husband's role. Have you ever noticed that the wife is never given that direct command to love her husband in the Scriptures? I think it's because they do it automatically. It's their loving, caring, nourishing nature. But guys, we got to be told over and over and over and over again. She definitely has the responsibility to love him as a person, whether friend or enemy, or a believer or spouse. But husbands have been told specifically four times to love their wives, to love her as a person, to love her as a believer, even if she is one, uh, if she is one and as a spouse. Then on top of this threefold responsibility to, the love, to love, we're given the command to love our wives as Christ loved the church. There's the motivation. Just as the wife's motivation was wives, do it, uh, submit to your husband as, Christ, as the church submits to Christ. So that's their motivation. The man's motivation is to love her as Jesus loved the church. That's the motivation, as Christ loved the church. The world's love, hey, it's always Conditional. The world's love is conditional, and they turn it on and off like a, like a faucet. A person is loved because of physical attractiveness, or their personality, or their intelligence, or their status, or, or some other positive characteristic. In other words, the world loves those who it decides is worthy of their love. But this kind of love is basically unreliable. It comes and goes. As soon as a person may, you know, as soon as that person loses that, that, that characteristic that you love them about or for, and if they lose it, well, guess what? They're no longer pleasing to me. Because the love is based on the characteristic. And if it's based on the characteristic that disappears, there goes the love. It disappears too. It's because so many husbands and wives have only that kind of fickle love for each other that their marriages fall apart. As soon as a partner loses his or her appeal, 
their love is gone. Because the basis for the love is gone because of that appeal. You know, when you hear couples when they're first getting married, and again, when I used to do a lot of premarital and, and you'd talk to the couple and, and you know, oh, you know, we're so love, you know, we're so much alike. We like to do the same things. You know, they like this sport, I like this sport, they like to go here, we like to go there, and, and it's just, oh, it's you know, the chemistry is perfect. I go, well, what happens if they don't want to play that game anymore? What happens if they lose interest in this over here? What happens if something happens to them physically where they can't do that anymore? What happens then? Because it's going to change. It's going to change. Do you, not, do you stop loving that person? Because the chemistry's changed now. Things, have, things are different. And as we get older, you know, our, our, our joys or, or hobbies or whatever, whatever you want to call it, they change. We take interest in other things. So, you know, those things are unreliable. They come and go. And like I said, if, those, if a person loses those characteristics, and, and then, then they're no longer pleasing. And there goes the love. And so again, it, it, we, we need it and understand what is critical. As soon as a partner loses their appeal, that love is gone. But God isn't like that. The love of God isn't like that. He loves because it's his nature to love. It's his, he can't help but love. That's all he can do because that's who he is. It's his nature to love. It's his nature to love what he's created and because the objects of his love need to be loved. Not because they're attractive. Not because it's deserved. He loves them because they're his. He created them. I mean, if God loved like the world did, man, he couldn't love a single person. But in God's wonderful graciousness, he loves because he can't do otherwise. Now, God can command his children to love the way he does because we belong to him. And he's given us the capability to love like he loves. And he's commanded us to love. So you know what? It must be a matter of choice. Because he's commanded us to love, it's a matter of choice. A command implies a choice to obey or disobey. Think about that. You can do it because, or, or you wouldn't have been commanded to do it. Because it's an act of the will. It's an act of the heart. And it seems to be a principle that, that whatever we choose to love and practice loving, it soon becomes attractive to us. But when, but when a Christian loves with Christ's kind of love, it, it's not based on the attractiveness of the one that's loved, but on God's command to love. Loving as Christ loved does not depend on, on one tiny bit on what the other's like or how they behave, but totally on what we are in Jesus Christ. A husband isn't commanded to love his wife because of what she is or isn't. He's commanded to love her because it's God's will for him to love her like Christ loved the church, and it's because that's what's best for her. God definitely intended for a husband to admire and be attracted by his wife's beauty and her charm and her kindness and her gentleness and any other positive quality or good quality that she has. But even those good qualities 
Even though these good qualities bring great blessings and enjoyment, they're not the bond. They're not the glue that holds the marriage together. Because again, we're not going to have all of those things that we had at the beginning of our marriage. And if you haven't looked at your senior picture lately, go ahead and look at it and then look in the mirror. <laughs> it's been quite a change over the years. So the physical things cannot be the things that are, are the glue and the, that holds it together. It's commitment. You know, God forbid, you know, one, one gets in an accident and they you may not be able to walk or do things that they used to do and, and there might be some other things that happen and you know, again, it's commitment that holds the, the relationship together. If every attractive characteristic and every good quality of a husband's wife disappears, he's still under the great commandment and obligation to love her. Again, commitment. That's how you spell marriage. Commitment. If anything... He's under greater obligation because her need for the healing and restoring power of his selfless love is even greater. More assurance, more security. You see, that's the kind of love Jesus Christ has for his church and the kind of love every Christian husband is to have for his wife. A Christ-like husband is to love his wife and he's to do it enthusiastically. In other words, he's to show his love in visible ways but he'll assure her of his love by what he does. It's also important that he doesn't depend on a few things that he did in the past where he showed her his love and think that that's good enough for today. He has to continue to show that love every day. And a Christ-like husband is to love his wife, and he's to do it. As Peter said, according to knowledge, husbands dwell with them with knowledge, with understanding. In other words, he will take the time, he will make the effort to study her so that he can best know how to love her, the best way to love her. Understanding her and understanding her circumstances will help him to love her better. Another way he can love her according to knowledge is to study her. And that's what it means. To dwell with her according to knowledge means to study her and apply God's kind of love and God's principles of marriage to his relationship with his wife. And, and you know, it, it's, it's a lack, a sign of a lack of love for God and your wife when a husband says, I don't like to read. I don't like to read the Bible. I don't like to study it. I, you know, I, I never was good at reading. I never, I never liked to, to study. We see, this is what we need to do because his word says to read scriptures it says to study your, uh, who your wife is to learn about her what learn about your role learn about being a, a husband and a, and a dad and a family member learning all of those things but you learn it through the scriptures and so when you say hey i i don't i don't want to i don't like to it's a lack a sign of a lack of love for god and your wife paul says study to show yourself approved to God, a workman that doesn't need to be ashamed. And another thing, a Christ-like husband is to love his wife sacrificially. I'm going to read because God wants me to. I'm going to read because that's where I'm going to find out how to love, how to be a husband, a dad, a family man. 
just like Jesus Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Because that was what was best for her. He gave himself for the bride. He must put his wife before himself and serve her, even when it means a personal sacrifice on his part. Jesus sacrificially loved us to death. And our goal as husbands is to pattern our love after Christ, being willing to lay down our lives for our wife every day. As Jesus said, greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. A wife who is sacrificially loved will usually have no doubt that her husband's love uh, is for her, that he loves her, and it helps to remove any insecurities. Now that we've seen what the Bible says about your role as husbands, are we ready to compare ourselves to what it says? And this is where it gets tough. Are you wholeheartedly and enthusiastically unconditionally ready and willing to put into practice the role that God has written for you in Scripture. If you are, then you're wanting to be a better leader and a better all-around husband. And if you've already recognized some areas in your leadership where you've fallen short and you need to change and rearrange, then confess it to the Lord. Do your best to live based on your new understanding. Remember, A Christ-like husband knows that he's not perfect, but he keeps Jesus always in front of him as his example. And you have to choose to walk daily in God's truth. The psalmist said in Psalm 119, 1 and 2, Blessed are the undefiled in the way who walk in the law of the Lord, and blessed or happy are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with the whole heart. And we're going to look at five areas of the husband's responsibility. And the Christ-like husband will be committed to his responsibilities in the area of worshiping Christ and Christ alone. In love, leadership, physical intimacy, and service. The most important commitment for the Christian husband is to have a heart of worship toward God alone. God is looking for worshipers. But we have to ask ourselves, Who or what are we worshiping? Who or what are we worshiping? Every Christian is to be a worshiper of God. God cares about what's going on in a man's heart. And you can't hide it because he sees in a man's heart, the scripture says. What is worship? Some people think that worship is the same as praise or adoration. Well, they're both a part of worship. But it involves a lot more than that. Worship is to be an all-consuming and all-encompassing obsession. Because what we worship, what we worship, we will adore, sacrifice for, focus on, submit to, seek after, hope in, serve and give to, talk about, Look to for peace, meaning and happiness. Spend a great amount of thoughts, time, energy, and resource on. God hates idol worship. He doesn't want his people to worship anything or anyone but him because he wants wants their hearts to belong to him. 
Joshua 24, 23 says, Now therefore, he said, Put away the foreign gods which are among you and incline your heart to the Lord God of Israel. Because we know that God deserves to have us uh, live our lives for him. We can understand why God forbids us to worship anyone or anything else but him. In God's word, he warns us many times about misplaced worship. Because he knows that every man's heart is prone to worship other things, and it doesn't take a lot. And he calls this misplaced worship idolatry, which is an abomination to God, because it robs him of the glory that, that's due him. Idolatry is the worst thing that we can do in front of God. And even those who know Christ as Savior and Lord can find themselves involved in idol worship when they get weak in their worship of God. When we make something other than God our main focus and goal, we're clearly involved in idol worship. So when we worship idols, we naturally distance ourselves from fellowship with God who is the one true refuge. And when you feel far away from God and you may start to say, you know, you know I, I, I don't feel close to God anymore. Understand something, God hasn't moved. You moved. God doesn't move. Where can he go? The, the whole world can't contain him. You've moved. I've moved. Like Jesus said in Revelation 2.4, you have left your first love. You left your first love. You ignored your first love. You've put him on the back burner. You've set him aside. And when that happens, this allows us to continue our idol worship. So what happens in our disappointments or in our difficulties of life, we end up turning from trusting in God to trusting other things. To trust in other things like you know, for help, for comfort, for peace, strength, and even safety. Jeremiah 13, 25 says this, This is your allotment, that which is due you, says the Lord. I have measured it out especially for you because you have forgotten me and put your trust in false gods. God wants you to get rid of any idols in your marriage and guide yourself, guard yourself from idols because what we worship is our passion. And when we're passionate about something other than Jesus Christ, we're going to have the wrong desires and the wrong expectations. But when we're passionate about Jesus Christ alone, we will have the right desires and expectations. And as a result, these desires will have a serious effect on our decisions and on our actions and our joy. I'm going to name a few wrong desires and expectations in marriage. Because we can put some expectations on our husband or on our wife that they can't fulfill. So we have to understand and we have to find out and know. But here's just a few. My wife will please me with physical looks and dress, her talents, abilities, and accomplishments outside the home. Or I can do whatever I want with my time. And boy, I've seen that a lot with the guys. It's like they still think they're single and they're going out with their buddies doing this and doing that. Oh, was guys night out? Well, I've seen the two girls night out. But, you know, hey, understand, 
you're married now. And the Bible says, my wife is, I'm to, you know, we're to be the team. So one, one of the expectations and, and uh, wrong desires is I can do whatever I want with my time. Here's another one. My wife will be the sexual initiator or be ready sexually when I desire her. She'll be the perfect sexual partner no matter what I ask of her. The next one. That, should, uh, that, that she would always treat me with respect. Remember, Jesus didn't always get respect from his wife, did he? That I would have plenty of money to be able to live as I please or live the good life. That she'll always make me happy and I would know and find total love on human level. Here's another thing we do too. We, you know, we hurt when people give me, oh, this person's going to make me the happiest woman or I'm the happiest man in my life. Well, you're heaping an awful big responsibility on that person to always make you happy. It's not going to happen. You know, we need to understand there are going to be difficult times, difficult days, and, and it's not always going to be you know, as, as wonderful as you, know, you, th- you think it's going to be. That's where the Lord Jesus Christ comes in and fills up that place. Next, that there would be peace and harmony all around me all the time. Well, when you get children, uh, good luck, you know, peace and harmony. Yeah. Next, some, uh, some, uh, and here's some right desires and expectations. That I may know Christ and delight to walk with him. That I may seek Christ with my whole heart and become more like him. That I may be used by God to witness for him. That I, might be a, that I may be ble- a blessing to Christ no matter what my circumstances are. I'm sorry. That I may be pleasing to Christ no matter what my circumstances are. That I may develop an attitude of joy and thankfulness in what God is doing in my life. That I may have confidence and joy in how God has decided, uh, you know, when, no matter what place or circumstances I'm in. That I may have confidence and joy in how God has decided, again, whatever my dif- difficulties are, and he can use me best for his glory. And last, that I may serve others rather than be served. We need to have the right heart before we can have the right life. That's why Solomon said, guard your heart above all else because it determines the course of your life. And we can't expect real change if our heart is not willing to change. We can't accept or expect real change if our heart is not after God. Now, that doesn't mean that we wait for the desire. Before we desire to change. We don't wait for the desire to come before we do what's pleasing to God in certain situations. We do what's pleasing to God, and you know what? God will give you the feelings. He promises to reward obedience. He does reward obedience. So again, don't wait for the feelings to come before you're going to change a certain act or behavior. Do it in obedience to the Lord, and then he'll, he'll bless you with the feelings. Let's read verse 30 through 33. They're pretty self-explanatory as we finish the chapter. Verse 30 through 33. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. And for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Again, he's taking us back to the beginning, Genesis chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. Verse 32. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. 
Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as, his, as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So here's, here, here's the role of husband and wife in a nutshell in verse 33. One main principle for both in which they're all fulfilled. It says, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself. And in love, if all is done in love, it covers everything else. And let the wife see that she respects her husband. So in closing, there's many times in the Christian life when we're called to go against our feelings in order to obey God. And again, as Jesus prayed, not what I will, but what you will, God. But husbands, if you try to change your ways before you've decided to change your heart, that you, won't, that, that you want to worship Jesus by, its, by himself, it will be worthless. And if you, if you don't desire to change your heart and you want to worship Jesus, it, it's worthless. It takes a change of heart. We can get an idea of the devotion that we should have for Jesus by looking at his example. Husband, what's really important to you? What's your passion as far as your marriage is concerned? Is it for your wife to be the perfect, everlasting wife? Or is it for you to know and glorify Jesus Christ in your marriage? What's the passion in life, your life? Is there any other thing you think that you have to have in life besides Christ and his will? Is there anything or anyone other than God that you're worshiping? And think this one over slowly before you answer. Because it's only when a husband's heart is right that he's ready to work on the problems in his marriage. And here's four questions for husbands. Can your wife say that she's a better Christian because of you? Can your wife say she's a better mother because of you? Can your wife say she's a better wife because of you? And can your wife say she's better mentally, emotionally, spiritually, and physically because of you? Abraham Lincoln said, The success of a marriage depends not only on having the right partner, but being the right partner. Father, we come before you and we thank you for your word, Lord. And Father, we thank you that you, the creator, designed marriage father it was your idea it was your plan you didn't leave it to man to figure out and then lord you wrote the book on marriage the bible the blueprint for the home for raising a family and so lord may we always go back to the blueprints to see how best to build our homes or to go back and see maybe we've left something out. So Father, may your will be done in our lives and our families, Lord. May you be glorified through the families in your church, Lord. For your glory and for our good. 
Father, we thank you for the offering that we will receive today, Father. And again, a, a beautiful picture of the husband being the provider for his bride. Lord, you have provided for us for years. You've provided for us physically and financially, Lord. You've provided all that we've needed, God, as a church.